It's never too late. It's never too late. You notice how often that phrase gets used? How commonplace it is in our everyday culture? It's never too late to start that diet. You know, the one you pledged to start at the beginning of 2022 and renew that pledge at the beginning of this year. And here we are three years into the new year and you keep telling yourself and the email reminders from the weight watching programs you signed up for keep telling you it's never too late. It's the mantra that minimizes your age and maximizes what you can do at any age. It's never too late to go back to school, to start a new career, to run a 5K. You notice how even technology subtly trains us to think that it's never too late? I mean, instant access to Amazon with not just two-day delivery, but now same-day delivery drives us to bring home the message that it's never too late to get that birthday or anniversary gift that totally slipped your mind. So much of our society operates under the presupposition that it's never too late. We imbibe and live by that idea. And, and what it often breeds is a failure to plan and to prepare and to be personally responsible. What's the use? At any minute, even if it's the last minute, there's always another option. Or is there? The Lord Jesus has another word for us to challenge our presumptions and our presuppositions of it's never too late this morning. We want to hear from and learn from him. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 25? Matthew chapter 25 is we continue to hear from Jesus and his sermon on the Mount of Olives and his discourse about the end times. Matthew 25, and this morning we'll look at verses 1 through 13 together. Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. In this passage, Jesus continues 
the message that he began back in chapter 24 in the previous chapter talking about the end times, specifically talking about his return. And similar to what he pressed home in the previous passage, here's the basic point of this passage. The main point of chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. We must wisely prepare now for when the Lord returns. Simple message, basic message, main point of what Jesus has been talking about and what he's talking about this morning. We must wisely prepare for when the Lord returns. And as we look at this passage this morning, I think it teaches us a few lessons. Four specific lessons I want us to think through this morning. So four points. One, this passage teaches us to contemplate Christ's amazing condescension. Contemplate Christ's amazing condescension. Secondly, this passage teaches us to consider the ways of the wise and the foolish. Third, this passage teaches us to expect the unexpected. And fourth, this, this passage teaches us, don't presume upon grace to guard you from poor preparation. So number one, contemplate Christ's amazing condescension, which is really what we see in the entire passage. Number two, consider the ways of the wise and the foolish. We'll see that in verses one through four. But number three, expect the unexpected in verses five and six. And number four, don't presume upon grace to guard you from poor preparation. We see that in verses seven through 13. Number one, con consider or contemplate Christ's amazing condescension. To condescend means to come down, to debase. Now, it's a bad thing to be condescending toward others, but it's a wonderful thing to condescend for the sake of others. Last week, we noted an example of Christ's condescension in looking at his statement of not knowing the day of his return. How amazing that statement was, that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who possessed all knowledge from all eternity, freely chose to become a man and live within the limitations of humanity. He lived as a human for us. This entire book of Matthew, and specifically part of the passage last week, is meaning to point us to the majesty of Jesus' divine nature and his human nature in the one person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. And here in our passage this morning, we see Jesus' condescension again. And not in acknowledging what he does not know as a human being, in embracing his limitations as a man for us, but we see Jesus' amazing condescension in just the way he talks here. I mean, this text for us, if we were honest, has us scratching our heads a bit. I mean, you're like, what in the world is Jesus talking about? You got ten virgins and lamps and bridegrooms and oil. It's like weird. But in Jesus' day, in the first century in which Christ lived on earth, these things would make total sense. 
they describe the activities surrounding a Jewish wedding, which often happened at night, which speaks to the need for lamps or for torches. As part of the wedding festivities in that day, the groom would, would go to the bride's family's home to pay the dowry price for his bride. There also at the, the bride's family's house, the ceremony would be held. And then any kind of last minute matters or preparations between the groom and the bride's family would be worked out before finally the groom took his new bride into his home and would hold a wedding feast later on in that night as a kind of grand way to cap off the festivities. And the bridesmaids, which is probably what this term virgins means here, unmarried bridesmaids, young women who were unmarried, they would be part of the procession at night going to meet the groom and welcome him and the bride and follow them into the wedding feast. Now we'll get into some of the details of what this all means in a minute. But what I want us to just remember here is that Jesus is meaning to teach spiritual truths, deeply important spiritual truths that will have eternal impacts. And he's been talking about the massive importance of his any time return where he would judge the world and bring his people into his heavenly kingdom forever. Well, Jesus here tells us of the massive importance of that event and the need to prepare for it in language that people can understand, using illustrations from everyday life that his disciples would be able to grasp. I mean, last week at the end of chapter 24, he did it using the illustration of the homeowner and the thief, and then the master of the house and the servant. And here, the bridesmaids meeting the groom for the wedding feast. Weddings were a large part of, of Jewish culture. Celebratory events in the life of not just the family, but the entire village. Jesus attended weddings. Remember when he went to the wedding at Cana in John 2, where he famously performed his first miracle of turning water into wine. And Jesus used weddings, used marriages as imagery throughout his teaching ministry. In chapter 9 of this book, we were maybe a couple years ago now, when the Pharisees questioned why Jesus' disciples did not fast, Jesus likened himself to a groom and the disciples to wedding guests and said that it was not appropriate for the guests to mourn while the groom was with them. It was a time to celebrate. When he was taken away, then they would fast. And in chapter two, 22 of this book, Jesus told another parable using a wedding feast as the main illustration. Amen. Jesus is laboring to teach his disciples, to teach us, and he means for his teaching to get down into our bones, to get down into our souls. And so he uses pictures and parables to press his points home. Saints, this is God condescending, coming down to man even at the level of language. Friends, God is not out to get you. God is not out to confuse you. I mean, we often say things like, the Bible is confusing, or the Bible is hard to understand. And in saying that, sometimes it's more of a subtle attack on God. Like if God wanted me to understand this, he would put it in a way that would be easily understandable. Well, friends, God has done that. The problem is not with God's heart. The problem is with yours. God so loved us 
that he sent his only begotten son to come down to earth and to live for us and to die for us and to rise again for us. God so loved us that he sent his son into the world to live not as a hermit, but to live among us, to eat and drink, to work and recreate, to worship and attend weddings with everybody else in the culture, even though he was unlike everybody else in the culture. He lived as a man and used all those experiences to teach us in words and in ways that men and women would understand. Jesus did not speak in a distinct divine tongue, a language that only God could understand. Jesus did not speak as some high-level intellectual who sounds deep, if only because he uses words and concepts that no one knows. No, Jesus came down to our language. God himself came and spoke in human words, using human experiences. He spoke in the terms of the people in the first century because he wanted to save them, because he wants to save us. And friends, I pray that as you read this parable, as you read through the Gospels, you're increasingly struck as you meet the man Jesus and see the incredible, amazing condescension of Christ. As you see him walking among people, going to weddings, rubbing shoulders with sinners, see the amazing condescension of Christ in how he lived and how he spoke to us so that we might understand. That's one thing I think this parable is meant to teach us, the amazing condescension of Christ. Another thing it teaches us is to consider the ways of the wise and the foolish. Point number two, consider the ways of the wise and the foolish. Now, one of the things about a parable is that you should not over-interpret it. You can't try to make a parable walk on all fours and have all the images mean something. People have done that in some terrible ways with this parable over the years. Everything has some spiritual significance. The lamp equals the word of God. The oil equals good works, and on and on and on. It's attractive. It sounds spiritual. It sounds wise but I don't think it's warranted. Right. While you can't interpret every image here, I think we are meant to interpret some of the images here. The bridegroom, or simply the groom, in this parable is Jesus Christ. Amen. He is the king of heaven. Notice the beginning of verse 1 says, this parable alludes to the kingdom of heaven. Well, you have no kingdom without a king. Right. Jesus Christ came to inaugurate his kingdom. His rule, heaven's rule on earth over those who would turn from sin and trust in him. He came to betroth, to engage to himself a people, a bride, to take sinners and save them and bring them into his kingdom. In the Old Testament, like the passage we read earlier from Isaiah 54, God referred to himself as a husband who would redeem his people. And as we've alluded to already in passages like Matthew 9, Jesus himself calls him the groom, the redeemer of his people. As one theologian put it, Jesus came the first time to pay the dowry price for his bride by his own blood. And Jesus is coming back to consummate his kingdom and to invite his people into his eternal wedding feast, into everlasting joy in his presence. 
Jesus is the groom in this parable. And the ten virgins represent professing Christians. Some among the group are genuine believers and some are not. You know, there's a difference between those who profess Christ, who claim they know him, who, who say they know him, who say the right things about him. There's a difference between those people who profess Christ and those who actually possess Christ, who really know him, who truly belong to him, who devote not just a portion of their lives, but their entire lives to him. I wonder which one accurately describes you this morning. Are you a professor or a possessor of Christ? I pray that by the end of this message, you'd be drawn to know the Lord as real and that he'd know you as really following him. We see an indication of a division among this group of of 10 early on in verse 2. But before we get to what separates them, Notice in verse 1 what they all have in common. All ten virgins are eager to meet the bridegroom. This group is not like the bunch of people in the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, where the king invites all the people to, to come to the wedding feast of his son. But we read that the people would not come. And so the king sends out another invitation, inviting more people to to come to the wedding feast of his son. But the text tells us there they paid no attention and instead went off doing their own affairs. Now, all 10 of these virgins have accepted the wedding invitation. They've agreed to be part of the wedding and are eager participants in every portion of it. All 10 believe that the groom is coming for this final leg of the festivities. All ten believe that the wedding feast is happening. And so all ten take their lamps or their torches, which would be needed to see at night and to guide the wedding party into the feast. And these torches would also mark off that they belong to the wedding party. All of them take these lamps to go welcome the groom. If you stopped at verse 1, the picture you get is one of universal devotion of universal faithfulness and eagerness. They all seem to want to see the groom. They can't wait for his arrival. Just like if you stop at one o'clock on a Sunday. The picture you often get is one of universal devotion, of universal faithfulness and eagerness. In services like ours around the country, around the globe, people gather together for a few hours. And everybody seems to believe that the groom is coming. Everybody seems to want to see the groom, to see King Jesus, and seemingly can't wait for his return. I mean, people sing about it. They pray about it. They say amen when it's preached. Amen. Amen. (laughs) But Jesus pokes behind the scenes here a bit and shows that the mere semblance of faith The mere evidences of eagerness are not enough. True faith is exemplified. Real eagerness is shown by our wise and steady actions. In verse 2, Jesus divides this group of 10. that look so uniformly together, uniformly alike in verse 1. He divides them and says five of them were foolish and five were wise. No one wants to be thought of as a fool. You know, all of us want to be considered wise. But we often only think 
of those labels in terms of intellect or knowledge, don't we? To be called a fool seems like you're calling me stupid or dumb, like I don't know something. And to be wise is to know a lot, to be smart, to be intelligent. But the Bible does not define those terms in those ways. According to the Bible, you can be formally uneducated, you can work in a trade and not a boardroom and be the wisest person on earth. See Jesus. And you can be the most educated, the most decorated with degrees and all the training and yet be a fool. See the scribes and the Pharisees. No, wisdom and foolishness don't find a core simply in what you know or how much intellect you have. But they do reside in the mind, in the thoughts. I mean, notice in verse 2, Jesus says these people were foolish, were wise, with their actions then later demonstrating what they already were. Our actions always flow out of who we are inside. Evil actions from evil hearts. Foolish actions from foolish hearts. The foolish have their hearts, have their thoughts only on immediacy, only on today. What's right in front of them, they they move carelessly through life. They assume normalcy in the things of life, like plans will go exactly as they think. While passages like Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, tells us that that the wise man, his heart, plans his course. Right? He's diligent in planning, and yet he knows that ultimately the Lord determines his steps. He plans, but ultimately things happen in God's way and in God's timing. The attitude of the foolish and the attitude of the wise show up in their actions in verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 3. The foolish showed themselves to be fools, but when they took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Again, these lamps were more like torches. They were like bundles of rags gathered around a stick. Those rags would be soaked in oil so they could burn. A well-soaked rag could burn continuously for about 15 to 20 minutes, after which that rag would need to be dipped again into oil for it to continue to burn. So you see the problem with the foolish here. They are utterly unprepared. Yes, they had their lamps probably already soaked with oil, but they only had enough for a very short burn because they thought the groom was coming in a very short time. He didn't tell them the time he was coming, but in their own minds, they had their own plans and didn't plan on any contingencies, didn't plan on their plans being wrong. The wise, however, had the same information as the foolish. They, too, lacked the exact time of the groom's coming. As we'll see in a minute, they thought it might be soon, too, but they did not lean on their own understanding. They prepared as if what they thought might not actually be the case, might not actually happen in the timing that they thought. What they knew is what the foolish knew. 
that their task was to meet the bridegroom with their lamps, whenever it was, and to have them burning as they entered the wedding feast. And they prepared themselves to accomplish what the groom had assigned them to do, to be ready for his coming. So not only did they take their torches, but they also took multiple flasks of oil with them to, to keep their lamps burning throughout the night. All ten virgins seemed eager to meet the groom, but only five were wise. Only five were taking the proper steps to meet him. Their wisdom resided not simply in what they knew, but was demonstrated by what they did. They prepared to meet him. Wise preparation is required to see Jesus. Wise preparation is required to see Jesus. You might say all you want that you want to see him, but are you preparing to meet him? Now, what does wise preparation look like for us? Well, for one, it means reading God's word. Second Timothy chapter 315 says that the scriptures make us wise for salvation. Psalm 19 says the word imparts wisdom. Right? The, the scriptures teach us about Jesus Christ. They teach us about the groom who came and laid down his life to save us from our sins and to have us as his bride. They teach us that we need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. The scriptures teach us that Jesus is coming back for his bride. They teach us what we need to do to prepare for him, to be ready for him. I mean, just think of, of passages like Ephesians chapter 6. For the Apostle Paul uses imagery of battlefield armor as preparation for spiritual warfare. The spiritual warfare that is ours until Christ returns. The wise Christian is always prepared, the scriptures tell us. God does not want us to be caught off guard. And so we need to simply obey what the Bible says and be prepared at all times. Because at any time, the Lord may come back. Amen. Jesus has been teaching that to the, to the disciples in the last chapter and continues to do that even here, that he is coming back at a time that is unexpected. Amen. Here in this parable, verses 5 and 6 teach us to expect the unexpected. The third thing we want to learn in this passage is expect the unexpected. And what's unexpected in this passage well, verse 5 tells us that it's that the bridegroom is delayed. He didn't come as soon as the virgins expected. It grew later and later and later and so late until we read that all the virgins became drowsy and slept. It reminds us that the return of the Son of Man may take some time. It may be today or it may be 50 years from today. It's already been 2,000 years. But that should not cause us disbelief. That should not cause us to deny his coming. Amen. And Jesus, more than 2,000 years ago, foretells us here, even through this parable, that there would be a delay, at least in our eyes. In the eyes of the Lord, a 1,000 years are as a day. And a day as a 1,000 years. Don't let delay lead you to deny that Jesus is coming back and catch you off guard. The Lord is not delayed, not in his timing. 
Instead, be prepared, even if it seems like he's delayed. And the person that's prepared can rest until he returns. I mean, notice here that all 10 virgins sleep in verse 5. And their sleep is not condemned, at least not for all of them. I mean, it's something of a reminder of the ordinariness of rest. Yes, work, prepare, be about the Lord's business until he returns, and then go to sleep at night. When you're prepared to meet Jesus, you don't need to anxiously stay awake worrying about his return. Saints, I hope that gives you comfort, especially if you struggle with anxiety. You know, I think sometimes we might hear these calls to be prepared for Christ's return to pursue holiness and fight sin until then. And what happens is that our hearts and minds start spiraling out of control with quests and questions of if I'm doing enough, if I'll be prepared enough to meet him. Friends, if that describes you, first of all, take comfort in the fact that you want to be prepared to meet Jesus, that you're not casually coasting through life assuming a relationship with Jesus, but that you're actually concerned with doing what he says. Says that is a good desire. That is a God desire. People who don't belong to Jesus don't give much thought to seeing Jesus. Don't take much stock in examining their lives and seeing if they're ready to meet him. I pray you'd find rest in remembering that ultimately it's Christ's work and not your works that qualifies you to meet him. I pray you take rest in knowing that ultimately it's Christ's work, finished work, and not your works that ultimately qualify you to meet him. It's his perfect life for you. It's his sacrificial death for you. It's his resurrection from the grave for you that qualifies you to see him, that secures your eternity with him forever. Keep trusting in him. Keep believing in him. Keep remembering that it is by grace you have been saved through faith apart from works. But then know that your desire to work for him is from him. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared works for us to walk in as we prepare to welcome Jesus' return. That you want to walk in those works and that you strive to do so is a good sign of your safety and your salvation when he returns. Even if he's delayed, you don't need to be disquieted or distressed. You can rest in him. You're ready. But friends, You should not rest if you are not ready. I mean, the wise here in verse 5 are fine going to sleep. Even though the groom was later than expected, they had enough oil to last for whenever he came. But the foolish didn't. His delay should have utterly worried them because they were utterly unprepared. They weren't able to do what he called them to do to go out and meet him with their lamps and to come into the feast because they did not bring enough oil for their lamps. 
All they had was the oil that was on their rags and that would have only lasted the 15 minutes. It's been long past those 15 or 20 minutes that one rag could burn off one dip of oil. And so they should have been thinking, we should have brought more oil. They should have been thinking, we need to go and go get more oil. But they seem completely unconcerned. They lay down their heads, just like the wise, and sleep like babies, as if they have no cares in the world. We can go get what we need in the morning, no problem. It's a false hope. A false confidence that foolishness often fuels. As if later is always an option. But they don't make it to the morning. Verse 6 says, suddenly at midnight, there was a cry. The bridegroom is here. Come out to meet him. His delay was unexpected, but even more unexpected was his arrival. He came in the middle of the night while everybody was sleeping and called them to carry out their duties, come out to meet him with their lamps burning. And so all those virgins rose. Verse 7 says they trimmed their lamps. They they cut off the portion of the lamps that were already burned and and would try to dip them in, in more oil to light them again. Only the foolish realized, too late, they had no more oil and could not light their torches. So it will be when Jesus returns. He will come suddenly when people are not expecting it. And he'll call us to present ourselves to him. And some will find that they can't, that they aren't prepared to meet him, that they are lacking what the Lord requires. Jesus is teaching us in this parable, as he's taught previously, to expect the unexpected date of his return, and to be ready to be prepared always for it. Because you can't count on anybody else in that day to save you. That leads to the fourth and final lesson this parable is meaning to teach us, and it's this. Don't presume upon grace to guard you from poor preparation. Presumption is often the enemy of preparation and planning. I mean, perhaps all of us have some family member, some uncle or some cousin who make bad decisions with their money all throughout the year, overspend and undersave with the presumption that if they get in the bind, Big Cuz going to bail me out. Some companies and some industries do it. They make risky decisions and plan poorly all year long with the understanding that the government will bail me out. Perhaps it's no more prominent for people to presume presume upon others than when it comes to Christians. I mean, it's no doubt that Christians are called to do good works. But some people think that the church is supposed to make up for all their mismanagement of time and resources. I mean, it's their duty. They're Christians, and Christians have to, are supposed to show grace. You see something of that mindset in verse 8, don't you? The foolish, once they arise and realize they have no oil for their torches to go meet the groom, they turn to the wise and say, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Uh, They kept trying to light them, but, 
But like trying to light a lighter in the wind without oil, the flame kept going out. But notice how their deficiency doesn't produce sorrow that leads to repentance. They don't bemoan their lack of planning. They don't grieve their unwise actions. Their deficiency doesn't drive them to deep self-reflection, what they should have done. Their deficiency drives them to make demands of others, what they should do for them. Give us some of your oil. They demand and they expect the wise girls to help them out. Perhaps that's the mindset that contributed to their initial poor planning of not taking extra oil with them. Perhaps they saw the other five girls have extra, and so they figured, why do we need to bring any? If we get in a bind, you five will be kind and give us what we need. You show us some grace. But the other five, in verse 9, answer contrary to what was expected. No, they said. Since if we give what we've got, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go rather to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Now, some of you might be thinking, that's rather cold and unkind. That's petty of them. Callous and, and selfish even. But, but if you have those initial judgments, just hold them and weigh them against what Jesus says, how Jesus characterizes these women. Look at the beginning of verse 9. He calls them the wise. Saints, don't let other folks hold stuff over your heads that is not true of you. Don't let other folks label and mischaracterize you, make you feel some kind of false guilt because you don't do what they demand. What Jesus thinks about you is most important. What does he feel about you? You might say, oh, you being petty, you being cold. Jesus says you being wise. He calls these young girls wise because they properly prepared to meet the group. And their primary aim was to please and obey him, not others. They understood that if we give you some of our oil, then we might not have enough and might not be able to meet the groom's demands. He's called us to meet him with the torches when he comes. And just because you got a problem going on, because you didn't plan well, can't deter us from our primary concern. Amen. Meeting the master's needs, not man's needs. Right. Meeting the master's demands, not man's man, demands. I'm saying we're going to have to learn that lesson in life. Because people are always pulling at you. Everything is urgent. Everything is an emergency. And they want their emergency to cause you to drop everything and make it your emergency. You can't miss one Sunday to help me out. You can't withhold giving that offering one month to get me out of a bind. Bro, no. <laughs> My first allegiance is to the Lord, not to you. I must be faithful to what he's called me to do first and foremost. Friends, that's not ungracious or unloving. That's the most loving thing you can do. Show people that you love the Lord more than you love them. And so teach them to do the same. Had the five foolish virgins really loved the groom, they would have shown it. 
by taking every measure to ensure they were ready to meet him. Instead, they failed to properly plan. And they relied on the good grace of the wise to share what they had. But they were rejected. This encounter teaches us that some things simply cannot be borrowed. Young people, people, please don't live carefree lives now. Live lives as if you can do anything you want. You are not going to be able to borrow your parents' righteousness at the last minute when you stand before Jesus and he returns. Husbands and wives, you are not going to be able to use your spouse's record of faithful obedience to Jesus to help you go out and meet him when he comes. Yes, in marriage, two become one, but in that day, each one will be responsible for themselves. You cannot presume upon the grace or kindness of others to help you when Jesus comes back. There is no spiritual transfer that's going to cover you except the transfer of Jesus' record to you now. You reject that now and live for yourself now, don't expect nobody to help you out later. You can't presume upon the grace and kindness of others to help you when Jesus comes back. And friends, neither can you presume upon the grace and kindness of Jesus to bail you out when he comes back. It'll be too late. Verse 10 tells us that while the foolish virgins went out to buy the the extra oil that they failed to initially bring, the bridegroom came. He came and they were not ready to meet him. They were still out trying to make last minute preparations. The groom came and those who were ready, the wise went in with him into the marriage feast and the door was shut. Inside that door, was a party that none of us have experienced. Inside that door was joy and celebration. The wise who prepared were with their king, were with the groom, enjoying his presence forever. Friends, that's the great marriage feast that will be ours if we prepare well to meet the Lord when he comes. We will forever be with our King Jesus in his presence, safe and secure and satisfied and happy in him. What a joy to be inside that door to experience everlasting joy in Christ's everlasting kingdom, but to be outside that door. Oh, to be outside that door is nothing but damnation. Only the fools still don't realize it. Notice, they've missed the bridegroom's arrival, and they are late to the wedding feast. Although those things are true, They act like all fools do, like it's never too late. Verse 11 says, they came all late up to the feast. Hours done passed. They've been been inside that feast for hours now. They come late to the feast, and they banging on the door. And again, they are making demands. Lord, Lord, open to us. And they presume upon the Lord's kindness to do so. Just as they presumed upon the virgin's kindness to do so. But we're in, they were refused by the, the virgins, five wise. Surely the Lord wouldn't refuse them. I mean, surely the Lord would be gracious. I mean, it's the Lord. But just like the five wise, the groom, the Lord rejected them. 
Look at verse 12. He answers, I do not know you. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know us? It's us. <laughs> we belong to the wedding party. We belong to you. Look, we got on the right clothes. We, we finally got oil for the torches now. I mean, we got the right language. We call you Lord, Lord. We belong with you in there. Jesus, I do not know you. Even though you claim to know me. Friends, those are terrifying words. Words that none of us want to hear. But friends, those are words that you will hear if you fail now to prepare for when the Lord returns. But you don't have to hear those words. You do not have to hear those words if you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today. And if every day you use all the means he's given you to obey him and live for him and love him and hate sin. Friends, don't presume upon the Lord's kindness later. Live in light of the Lord's kindness to you now. He gave you life and breath today. He gave you his word today and his meaning to instruct and to warn you today. Today is the day of salvation. Friends, today his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. One commentator notes, there's a time for everything under the sun. A time for mercy and a time for judgment. There's a time for late repentance. The thief on the cross and a time for too late repentance, these five silly girls. Friends, it will be too late to turn to Jesus to prepare for his return when he returns. We must all do as Jesus instructs in verse 13. Watch. Be alert now. Prepare now for no one knows the day nor the hour when he will return. So friends, be wise and watchful. Be always prepared to meet the Lord. He's coming back at some point. We don't know when. The question is not when. The question is, are you prepared to meet him? Examine yourselves. The Lord shows you that you are not. I pray that you would do everything you need to do today. Turn from sin and trust in Christ. Don't leave today without doing that. And if you are prepared to meet him, rest in him. And let that rest fuel you to keep on going. And to guard you from all sin and to show you how sweet it is on the other side of that door. This world is not all that there is. There's a marriage feast that's coming. That's going to last forever and ever where congregations never break up will forever be in the presence of Jesus and we'll be able to say as we're about to sing in a moment, Christ is mine forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Shape us by it, we pray. Shake us with it, we pray. Strengthen us, we pray, Lord. Convict us, we pray. Oh, Lord, by your spirit, so do work right now. Oh, Lord, we pray that none would know that I don't know you at that last day, but all would know the joy and fellowship in Christ that he has purchased with his blood.
that he wants us all to have. He's, he's given us his word today. And so, Lord, open our ears and hearts to receive. We pray all this in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen.